0: Well, hello, good morning in Mexico, and uh, good afternoon in London. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Alejandro Pore. It's uh, very early in the morning, and uh, he's going to explain a little bit of um, what's going on in Mexico. And uh, we would like to thank you, of course, um, on behalf of the Mexican Society, the Department of of Government, and the LEC in general um, for being here. Professor George Philip and um, Michael Cox will be, um, Professor Michael Cox, will be chairing this event. Um, so um, um, they will give some words and then we will hear the presentation of uh, Dr. Alejandro Pare. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Alejandro Pare.
1: Good, good afternoon and thanks for coming to this meeting. You will have heard that my voice isn't quite right so I shan't spend too long uh, opening the presentation. Just to say that I'm grateful to <laughs> Professor Mick Cox, not for the first time in my life, uh, for helping out to chair this important event. Um, Mick is, a, is an expert on security and the professor of international relations at the LSE, and um,
2: he will be chairing the, the meeting from now on. Thank you very much. Okay. Shall I do it from here, George? Or I think you might as well do it from here. Okay. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, as George said, I'm my name is Professor Michael Cox, Mick Cox at the LSE. I'm in the Department of International Relations and I also co-direct some one of our centers here uh, called Ideas, which deals with diplomacy and uh, strategy. Um, as they say, all the, all the best laid plans you have don't always uh, turn out to be the plans you want. And as we now know, in, in, far from uh, Dr. Alejandro Poiré being here at the LSE, he's back in Mexico City in what, what looks like a very nice office with very with very with very nice background. I think it's about seven fifteen in the morning. Um, and he's going to be speaking on on some of the major security problems and issues uh, facing Mexico today uh, in in the broad round. I know we no, we no longer call it the war on drugs. This is no longer p- permitted it's a war against crime, but it's going we'll to be looking at some of these fundamental questions of what's a major security challenge to a democratic state. Uh, one of the biggest in Latin America obviously and also living on the on the border with the United States of America which also adds further to the security dilemma and, and, the, and, and the problems uh, being faced by Mexico. We couldn't have a better speaker uh, to be doing that uh, Mr. Poiré is currently National Security Spokesman of the Mexican Government. He holds a PhD in Political Science, I should have called him Dr. Poiré so many apologies, from Harvard University and a bachelor's degree in the same field from Mexico's Autonomous Technological Institute where he's been a professor and the political science department chair. I mean in other words, he does exactly what we try to do here at the LSE in many ways, which is to try and bring the academic world in contact with, in in some real relationship, uh, to the policy dilemmas that policymakers face and show how the two need not necessarily be problematic uh, competitors, but in fact we can bring those two two dimensions uh, together. Um, he is our keynote speaker, the National Security Spokesman in the President's Office. He'll be speaking for about half an hour, for about 30 minutes, and then, or technology permitting and everything going well, uh, we will then open up to what I hope will be a very lively session of questions and answers. So, Dr Poiré, we're handing over to you, and we look forward to hear what you have to say. I wonder if we could give him an, an LSE welcome, please. Thank you very much.
3: Well, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon there in the in the UK. It is a pleasure for me to be here. Of course, it would have been a much greater pleasure to have been there, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity of speaking uh, through this media to be able to convey a little bit of the dilemmas that we have faced and the decisions that Mexico has made to try to uh, guarantee a longstanding uh, security environment in our country. So we have a presentation that I'd like to share with you if we move to slide number three, which is a, a summary of the background and context of uh, what Mexico has been facing over the last um, over the last few years. and Perhaps the most important thing to keep in mind and to understand when one looks at Mexico's security challenges is that the the crime environment and the, crime, the organization of crime in Mexico has changed in a structural way. There were, there were many things that changed over the last perhaps 15 years of the last uh, century and the first 10 years over this century in which uh, which demanded a structural response by the Mexican state. Uh, I will not speak about all of the other things that were going on in Mexico over the last 20 or 25 years but it is important to keep in mind that at least in terms of what happened to organized crime in Mexico very very significant changes occurred and um, uh, sadly not all of the changes that needed to have taken place in Mexico Happened at the right time in terms of public security, so that's why the, the administration of President Felipe Calderon over the last four years has uh, implemented a very aggressive, comprehensive, structural strategy to try to deal with uh, with these uh, with these problems. So, perhaps the most important thing to keep in mind when we think about organized crime in Mexico is that. Originally, when 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 thinks of drug trafficking uh, in Mexico over the 1970s and 1980s, this was a business that was mostly uh, uh, ran by uh, drug producers, mostly marijuana and uh, poppy seed and uh, poppy uh, producers in Mexico, exporting their product mostly to the United States. And this is the origin, and this was something that happened perhaps uh, since the since the middle of the 20th century and all the way up until the 70s and 80s. This particular uh, business was changed dramatically uh, during the 1980s and 1990s because of a series of changes affecting not only the domestic market for drugs but also the international market for drugs and the opportunities that these uh, illegal businesses were were, uh, were confronting for, for a number of reasons. I enumerate a number of them here in the presentation but just to go run quickly through them, uh, perhaps one of the most important ones was that most of the cocaine that was, that was being produced in Colombia and that was being sent in, into the United States was done, uh, this trafficking was done mostly through the Caribbean route, and going into the United States through Florida, and most of it was not coming through Mexico. At some point between the 1980s and uh, the early 1990s, this changed dramatically. And therefore, uh, what we call the Caribbean route was, dr- was closed for drug trafficking, or at least significantly diminished for drug trafficking uh, during those years. Therefore, a lot of the cocaine started traveling through Mexican soil and therefore a lot of the drug producers in Mexico, which were producing and exporting marijuana to the United States, started being part of this international uh, 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 trans-regional drug trafficking scheme, which sent the cocaine through Mexican territory and into the United States, not just for the for the Caribbean, uh, the, the the markets that were originally covered by the Caribbean uh, routes, but to most of the United States uh, in the center and the on the western and the western coast. Uh, another very significant change that happened uh, during those years was the enhancement of border security between Mexico and the, the United States. This doesn't have a lot to do with, uh, with drug trafficking. This mostly has to do with immigration policies in the United States and also with broader security politi- policies in the United States. Uh, this is important because it also changed the way in which this business was run uh, within Mexico by these criminal organizations. They not only were able to, to to get their product into the United States, but the benefits of crossing the product started going up because of the greater levels of interdiction. Uh, between Mexico and the United States. The, the other thing that started happening that was very significant, uh, especially between the 1990s and into the the first years of this of this, uh, of this century, was that a lot of the cocaine that was traveling into Mexico and into the United States, uh, a, a part of it started staying in Mexico. That is, Colombian cartels started paying Mexican cartels, not in cash, but in kind. Therefore, they had some portion of their production of cocaine left into, in, in Mexico and being used started to be used for the domestic market in Mexico. You have to keep in mind that this is also the time between 1994 and 2010, in which Mexico's uh, per capita GDP almost quadruples, between $2,500 in 1994 up all the way to $10,000 per capita in 2010. So this is a significant change in Mexico's domestic market that also makes a difference in terms of the kind of organization that criminal cartels had in Mexico at that time. It's not only a cartel that is devoted mainly to production and exportation. It's a cartel that is now starting to develop a broader and and more pervasive network in all of the country, especially in the northern cities, devoted not just to production and to exportation of these drugs, but most significantly to the distribution of drugs for domestic consumption. It is clearly still the case that the Mexican uh, drug market is relatively, uh, significantly smaller than what the the drug market is in the United States. But what's important is that the incentives change. So in these years, uh, if you add up all of these changes, uh, uh, the closing of the Caribbean route, the enhancement of border security, the fact that Colombian cartels start paying drug traffickers in Mexico in kind, the growth of the local drug market in Mexico, uh, all of these uh, changes uh, imply a transformation of the drug business in Mexico from just international trafficking in which there is virtually no need for territorial control by the criminal gangs in in Mexico and very little confrontation with domestic authorities uh, and in which all of they need to control are their routes and their they have to have low profile activities. because of the change to distribution markets and to distribution activities in local markets in Mexico, uh, this becomes a much different business uh, criminal business in our country. The, these organizations no longer need to control just the routes. They need to control a territory for distribution. They need to have a larger uh, network of distribution agents. They need to be able to corrupt local level police officers and local level authorities to make sure that they can distribute their product in certain areas, in the, in the nightclubs, or in illegal nightclubs, but also in legal ones. And because of this, this distribution, and because of uh, this distribution network that they develop, And because of the fact that during those years, there was not enough or systematic effort at the improvement and transformation of security institutions in our country, what you had was a very significant damage to all of the local level police institutions that really didn't even uh, get ready for these uh, transformation in organized crime. It It was a major challenge and a major problem that was happening in Mexico. And at the same time, local level police offices and local level uh, law enforcement institutions more broadly, not only did not improve or, or step up to the challenge, in many ways that were weakened uh, uh, and especially ha- uh, uh, damaged by these change in, in, in criminal organizations. The most important change, uh, that, or perhaps the most clear evidence of this change, was that Uh, Criminal organizations in Mexico, which were mostly concealed and uh, low-level, there was low level of violence. There was, of course, violence related to these organizations, but it was relatively uh, minor. They started fighting each other for the control of certain spots or certain regions or certain distribution markets uh, at the local level in Mexico. This is the most important thing to understand. That's why I'm I'm staying at this uh, part of the presentation for a little bit longer. Because there, was in, there were increased levels of violence in states like Michoacan, like Chihuahua, like Baja California. These are states, Michoacan is a, is a so, southwestern state where there is uh, production of, of, uh, of these products, but where there were significant uh, first ba- there were initial battles for the control of local level distribution, distribution. I'm sorry. But also, it was also the case in the, in the border states of Baja California and Chihuahua and Tamaulipas and also in the state of Sinaloa Uh, these different criminal organizations started fighting each other not just for the control of the routes but more particularly for the control of the local level markets and that is the kind of organization that benefited significantly also from something that changed in the United States up until 2004 Uh, the sale of assault weapons, like AK-47s or or AR-15, these are uh, semi-automatic, very powerful weapons, was banned. Uh, There was a ban imposed by the, the US government, this ban was lifted, it ended, its term ended in 2004, so it is precisely at the time in which these organizations have already gone, the criminal organizations, have already gone through this transformation and have these very significant incentives to fight each other, it is exactly at that time in which they also find a much more uh, readily available illegal market for uh, high caliber weapons. So this is, in a sense, uh, the, the scenario that the Mexican government, which took office at the end of 2006, confronted, and for which a structural transformation was needed. I'll go very quickly through the next three slides. These are just uh, slides that, that show the origin of cartels between the 1930s and the 19, uh, late 1970s. These are mostly cartels devoted to the generation or the production of this uh, original exportation market. The next slide shows um, some uh, uh, historical events between the 1980s and the 1990s. In the second half of this uh, of this transformation, uh, it is uh, of the of this decade or of this, this slide. It, that's where the transformation mostly takes place between the night, but mostly in the 1990s, the late 1990, uh, 1990s. And the last slide, the last one of these slides, shows what has happened between 2000 and 2010. Perhaps uh, uh, to be more clear about what's happened. Um, we would need to look at what was already uh, what this change implied for Mexican society by the mid-2000s. If we take a look at the next slide, uh, most people in Mexico uh, will remember what was happening in June 2004. This is, these are images of the largest ever demonstration in Mexico's history. Uh, This is a demonstration that happened in Mexico City. Uh, About at least a million people participated in it. This was a demonstration that, of course, was not a demonstration against organized crime or against uh, 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 drug trafficking. This was a demonstration that was mostly um, oriented as a protest against kidnappings in in the Valley of Mexico, not just Mexico City, but also the state of Morelos and other places. And this is an indication that Mexican society was very clearly fed up with crime. Crime levels were going up. Uh, it was clear that local-level law enforcement institutions, which are the primary responsible authorities for fighting crime, were being um, uh, incapable of uh, stepping up to the challenge. And this was a this was a very clear indication that public uh, insecurity was the key problem that needed to be addressed in the coming years. Uh, the, why, why do I relate this to what I told you just a few minutes ago? Because as criminal organizations develop these networks and develop the ability to co opt, to corrupt or to uh inflict fear upon local level law enforcement institutions, they began entering not just the drug trade for domestic and international purposes, but all sorts of other criminal activities, in which uh, such as kidnapping, extortion, racketeering, and their ability basically to create these very significant criminal organizations uh, that controlled a large array of criminal activities in domestic markets, in particular in some of the areas that I've already mentioned, in particular at the north and the kidnapping industry in the center of, uh, of, uh, of, um, of the territory. So it was clear that even if the population, or maybe even most authorities were not clearly aware of what exactly uh, the problems that we were facing were, this was a very clear demand that needed to be addressed in a much more systematic and comprehensive way. We'll look, take a look at the next chart that summarizes what has been Mexico's national public safety strategy, its components that can be easily summarized into perhaps uh, uh, the following the following areas. The most important thing that needed to be done at the beginning of this administration, that is to December 2006, was to make sure that at the local level local level authorities and citizens could count on the very clear support and the abilities and the strength of federal level authorities, in particular the federal police, but also the military, to confront these organizations, which had created massive uh, 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 capabilities to uh, act in very um, unhampered ways. Uh, at the local level so the first thing was to be able to contain and weaken these authorities uh, uh, contain and weaken these criminal organizations at the local level and support local level authorities it was also very important to make sure that Mexico's government especially the federal level but also state and municipal levels their institutions were, were able to scale up their operational and technological capabilities, uh, realizing or, or making uh, taking into account the fact that these organizations, the criminal organizations, had actually increased their capabilities as well. Uh, a third component of, of the strategy uh, was to make sure that we could make all of the legal reforms, both at the federal level but also at the local level, to uh, modernize our constitutional and legal framework to deal with organized crime and with crime more broadly. It is also also the case that we needed to have a very active uh, policy that recognized that the social fabric, in particular in urban uh, lower income areas, had been torn apart, and that we needed to address these problems immediately, that the results in terms of uh, Social development policies were going to take long, but it, is, it was precisely because of these problems that we needed to be more very aggressive, to give uh, youth greater opportunities, to give um, families greater uh, uh, social network protection, to make sure that the kinds of phenomena that are related to local level crime were able to be uh, we were able to address them at the social from a social perspective as, as well. And the, five, the fifth component, uh, the fifth element of this strategy, was to strengthen international cooperation, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on. I'll, I'll let me give you uh, some additional uh, data on each of these components, and um, uh, to try to to try to give you some sense of how how we have uh, 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 addressed some of these uh, some of these issues. Perhaps if we go to slide number ten. These is a, this is a list of uh, the 37 most wanted criminals, as labeled by the attorney general's office only two years ago. These are the leaders of uh, the organizations that I just talked about. The, the Gulf Seta Cartel, which is in the, in the northeastern part of Mexico. The Familia Cartel, which was uh, in the state of Michoacán, which is the southwest coast. Uh, the Beltran Leyva cartel which was a part of the Pacific cartel uh, having operations in the central part of Mexico, central west part of Mexico the Pacifico cartel uh, uh, which was of course in the Pacific coast mostly in the state of Sinaloa at the west uh, of Mexico. The Carrillo Fuentes cartel which was mostly located in the north and center state of Chihuahua and in the city of Ciudad Juarez and the Arellano Felix Cartel in uh, in Baja California. All of these are the leaders of these organizations. Uh, 37 of them were um, uh, loose and uh, participating in the leadership of these uh, uh, criminal activities in March 2009. If we take a look at the next slide, you will see that um, out of these 37, 20 of them have been inhabilitated. Most of them have been captured. A few of them have, have even been extradited to the United States. And uh, a few other more have been killed uh, in, because of the uh, action of uh, federal authorities uh, when trying to, uh, to restrain them. Uh, what's significant about this is that, indeed, these leaders of, or- of these organizations have been inhabilitated. And their leadership and their capacity to organize these uh, massive networks uh, that, was, uh, that took place over the last uh, 15 or 20 years that I've talked about has been very significantly weakened. It's not just at the leadership level that these organizations have been struck. If we take a look at the next slide, you will see that we have uh, uh, the Mexican government has put over 90,000 people under arrest for uh, uh, criminal activities related to uh, mostly uh, drugs, but not only drugs, uh, also kidnapping, extortion, and the other activities, homicide, of course, uh, related to, to, to these criminal networks. And we have hit each and every one of these cartels according to their size. And these are not just captures at the leadership level. It's also in terms of their organizational capacities. And uh, therefore, what has happened over the last four years is that in response to these very large organizations, we have had a very systematic ability by the federal government to be weakening these organizations at the leadership level, at the organizational level, and also in terms of their, of their uh, ability to inflict some of these other crimes that we have mentioned. When we look at, uh, in the next slide, when we look at the seizures of all of the inputs that these organizations use, not just the, the, the drug trafficking, but the, the guns and the ammunition and the kinds of things that they use for their benefit and for their operation, the current administration has had historical advances, not just in terms of their, uh, the seizure of marijuana, but methamphetamines. if we take a look, look at the next slide. Also, in terms of uh, cash, both in dollars and in pesos, uh, the number of ground vehicles that we have confiscated is also without historical standard. Even in terms of aircraft, most of them uh, tiny um, uh, airplanes, uh, but a very significant array of them have had also been uh, seized uh, from all of these criminal organizations, and much more than we have had in in past uh, in past uh, administrations. If we take a look at the next slide, that shows ammunition. Uh, we have confiscated over ten million rounds of ammunition, uh, and we have also uh, confiscated uh, uh, over eleven thousand grenades and explosives uh, uh, over the last four years only. It is the same case for handguns and rifles. We have had a historical level of confiscation. And these are all indications, not just of the kind of strength that these organizations were able to to build upon, but also in terms of our ability to be weakening these organizations over the last few years. Let's take a look at the next slide. And this this shows uh, uh, the total seizures of weapons in Mexico between 1994 and 2011. If you you see what happened before the beginning of this administration, we had a relatively large number of seizures in 1995 and 1996. But uh, since then, up until 2006, uh, the trend went downwards. And uh, it is precisely because of the effort of this administration uh, that we have been able to seize uh, a very significant number of weapons, both. Handguns and uh, assault weapons in in, in various uh, models from these criminal organizations. The next slide actually uh, uh, shows uh, the distinction between uh, handguns and high caliber weapons. Uh, high caliber being the the red uh, uh, columns in the chart, and you can see there that the proportion of, uh, of high caliber weapons as a share of the total of weapons that we have seized is has been growing. And this is also related to the change and the illegal market of, uh, of uh, assault weapons coming mostly from the United States as well. Uh, if we take a look at the next slide. Uh, uh, here, let me talk briefly. I only have about five or seven minutes to wrap up this part of my talk. But uh, we have made very significant strides in weakening these organizations. But the most important change that we have uh, started to push and in which we have Uh, some significant achievements as well is the structural transformation of law enforcement institutions in Mexico. I'll give you a glimpse of some of the most important changes but perhaps this chart uh, summarizes uh, what has been the most massive uh, uh, undertaking by the federal uh, authorities in terms of law enforcement capacities. At the beginning of this administration we had only 6,500 Uh, federal police officers for a country numbering about uh, 104 million people. Uh, This capacity has increased, uh, has multiplied a number number of times, and we now have 35,000 federal police officers, 7,000 of which are college graduates. All of them have been properly screened and vetted before going into the force and we have a systematic vetting process, which allows us to separate those who are not fit to serve, and also sub, sub, uh, those wh- which are subjects of criminal investigation uh, have also been uh, separated and put uh, um, under process. We now have not just a very highly skilled and professionalized force we of ha- federal police, we also have a system that will render very significant uh, benefits and capacities over the long run in Mexico. This is a transformation that not only needs to take place at the federal level; it also needs to take place at the local needs to take place at the local level. If we take a look at the next chart, that shows how much the total expenditures—that's uh, it—how uh, much the total expenditures of um, uh, by the federal government devoted the, the to security have changed. These are real figures. The the, Fed, the the budget devoted to security has more than doubled over the last over the last few years only, and it has also increased very substantially. We take a look at the next chart. At the state and local level, 90% of the crimes and 90% of the for, of the police forces in Mexico are state and municipal level police forces. There are some states and there are a few municipalities which have made very significant transformations to try to confront these crimes. Uh, The total level of expenditures that we have had, in addition to what the local uh, authorities can spend, that is the total number of subsidies uh, from the federal government to local level authorities to enhance their public public security system, has also very significantly increased. And we have tons of programs and and, uh, capabilities Devoted to state level authorities to try to make sure that the transformation that has taken place at the federal level also takes place at the state and municipal level to guarantee that this is a long standing transformation as well. Uh, Very briefly, uh, some of you might have been, uh, might have visited Mexico City and might have visited uh, the Federal Police Intelligence Center in Mexico. This is a very significant capability if we take a look at the next chart. Uh, It's a very significant capability that is connected to the 32 state level governments and with dozens and uh, uh, even hundreds of municipal level governments uh, to make sure that they all have access to criminal information and criminal databases that allow you not just to be able to not hire a policeman who has been uh, fired from some municipality in some state because you have his data there Uh, but also to have the kind of criminal intelligence capabilities to uh, be more effective against crimes as kidnapping and extortion at the local level. This is a massive uh, um, undertaking that is fully operational right now and which uh, has given access to millions and millions of of, uh, yearly um, uh, connections and queries by local level authorities for their own benefit and for their own uh, uh, capabilities for fighting and preventing crime. Uh, This transformation is not only done at the administrative level, we have also enacted very substantial legislation. If we take a look at the next chart, we have enacted a very significant criminal justice system uh, reform. It will be done by the end of 2015. That is, it will be implemented at the state and local level by the end of 2015. But we have also enacted legislation against kidnapping, against drug trafficking, uh, reforming the federal police and the attorney general's offices uh, uh, against uh, uh, illegal property, so that the state can actually seize illegal property from drug traffickers and their, and their, uh, and their, um, their networks. We have also reformed the way in which the Federation coordinates itself with the the state level, that is the transformation of the national public security system. And if we take a look at the next chart, where there are also bills under consideration in in Congress, uh, dealing with uh, police command, with military jurisdiction, with money laundering and terrorism financing, uh, with national security, and other uh, uh, offenses against um, freedom of expression. Let me go very briefly, just to wrap up to the social fabric component of the strategy. Very, very briefly, we have, the next chart shows the number of uh, what we call uh, public, uh, public space recovery. That is the number of places which have been remodeled. These are parks, uh, uh, basketball courts, and the number of facilities so that the youth, especially in uh, uh, urban areas that have been most affected by the growth in consumption of drugs and the growth in the recruitment areas for criminal organizations actually have alternatives uh, for these these young people have alternatives for recreation for uh, the practice of sports and also more significantly uh, for for education capabilities if we take a look at the next at the next chart uh, these are the total level th- these are the total expenditures at the federal bu- budget for poverty relief which are also have a, a new uh, significant component at the local level uh, uh, for for uh, social programs. Um, this is this just shows very briefly the chart. Um, uh, if we move, um, let's see, two charts ahead to chart number twenty-seven. Uh, that one that one's better. This is the this shows the growth in the number of people which have access to uh, what some of you may know, which is the Opportunities Program, the Programa Oportunidades. This is a a very successful poverty alleviation program, which, beginning in 2007, has gotten into urban areas, which it normally didn't get into. But we we have identified that these are areas that partly because of uh, strictly uh, poverty alleviation reasons, but also because the fact that these areas uh, in urban areas um, Need the kind of uh, of uh, re- restoring of the social fabric uh, component. Uh, it was particularly important to have additional social programs uh, conducted by the federation that could address poverty alleviation in these areas, which were uh, being mostly subject to uh, some of these uh, some some of the phenomena related to criminal organizations. So right now, uh, over 30 million people in Mexico, 6.8 million of them have access to this program uh, um, uh, in urban areas. If we take a look at the next chart, uh, which is another major achievement in social policy by this administration, by the end of the current administration, we will have universal health coverage in each and every one of the states in Mexico. As you can tell, Uh, This was mostly been created through the Seguro Popular, or Popular Insurance Program, which is a federally created program, and which has already has uh, over 80% affiliation in most of the states, and between 60 and 80% in the rest of the states, as the map shows. And this will give a very uh, robust social component that will allow uh, families not just to have health care, but also to have increased opportunities for combating drug addiction, and it will make it much more easy to prevent drug-related social and health problems in all of the country. One last piece of information. It is not just that we have to have a strong and robust health coverage system. We need to increase education and employment opportunities. I will not talk about the economy you have had and you will have uh, great speakers this week at the London School of Economics about Mexico's economy but if we take a look at the last chart and you might also have seen this uh, in, uh, in some of the talks by the education minister as well uh, in London this week uh, the total coverage in terms not just of elementary school enrollment but also in the high school and uh, college enrollment in Mexico has increased very significantly. Uh, in particular, in college enrollment, it's gone from 26 percent to 30 percent. We have built over 400 uh, high schools, public high schools, and over 80 public universities. And this has increased very significantly the capabilities of the public education system to cover some of the demand that has uh, that that was left behind. Uh, in terms of enrollment and in terms of the capability of young, uh, of young students to get into schools, to be more productive, to have greater capabilities uh, to prepare themselves for the job market. I'll wrap it up there. I'll just say, uh, uh, very briefly, we had a structural problem that needed to be confronted. We have a structural strategy to deal with it. This has to do with the containment of criminal organizations, with administrative changes at the federal and local level, with constitutional legal transformations, with this kind of social policy that I've already talked about, and with an unparalleled level of uh, cooperation with our friends and uh, strategic um, allies in many places in the world, in particular, with the shared responsibility by the United States government to confront this which is a regional, uh, a regional challenge. And I can talk about that a little bit more in the Q&A session. Thank you very much.
2: Well, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Poire. That was um, very concise, very informative, and um, in some ways a very provocative talk. I wonder if I could just uh, take the position of chair just maybe to ask the, uh, the very first question if one looks um, globally moving it away from Mexico and the region, but if you look globally the issue of organized crime uh, as a security problem not just as organized crime but organized crime as a security problem has uh, in a way risen up the uh, risen up the scale up the ladder of importance I mean when we had the Cold War there was Very little debate about crime of security and challenges to the state. Um, Over the last 20 years, it seems to me that one of the the new security problems, a non-state actor, if you wish, which has become more and more important, not just in Mexico, I'm sure you're aware of this, but around the world, um, has been the rise of organized crime and its challenge to states and to, to the viability of states. Uh, we've, we've seen this uh, with opium um, poppies in Afghanistan. We've seen this with human trafficking coming out of former communist countries and a number of other issues. So I think what you've contributed today is, is another piece in the jigsaw puzzle, if I might put it like that, another part of the jigsaw puzzle of looking at the question of organized crime as, um, as security and the securitization of crime as one of the new security challenges, not just for Mexico, I'm sure you're aware, but for for the international community more more broadly. I suppose the question I'd like to ask on the back of that is, what exactly do we call this though? Because I'm told we shouldn't call it a war on drugs, Um, but everybody does. Um, What exactly is one engaged in? Because it's clearly more than just criminal activity that one is combating here, because it challenges the security of the state. So it therefore takes on a political dimension as well and the second question in the sense related, uh, and I'd be interested to hear your response to the first, is are you winning? At what, at what point will we know that one is actually winning? Or is the, are we looking really at a permanent condition of conflict within the heart of the, of the Mexican democratic state?
3: Thank you very much for your questions. I think those are, those are very, very instructive and relevant ones. Um, what do we call it? Um, I think I, I, I thoroughly agree with you with the fact that this is a this is a phenomenon that is not exclusive uh, to my country. When one looks not just at the cases that you mentioned, but when one look when one looks at places like Brazil and uh, what's happening in some of the favelas there, uh, if you look take a look at places like Venezuela, like. Uh, um, uh significant parts of central america and the caribbean and uh even other places uh not to mention northern africa of course but uh even other places um in some central and eastern europe you will see that some of the things that i've talked about of course with a very clear exception and the very clear distinction that mexico is right next door to the largest market of uh, of consumption of drugs and also uh, one of the key suppliers of of, uh, illegal traffic of guns and uh, the availability of money. Those are particularities of the Mexican case, certainly. But in all of these other places that I've mentioned, you do find the presence of uh, criminal organizations with global capabilities and with uh, uh, linkages and networks to criminal organizations in Southeast Asia, in Central Europe, in other places in the world. You also have the presence of these criminal organizations that uh, are in the face of uh, a uh, rupturing, or a fracture, or a a very significant weakness of the social fabric due to inequality, due to a number of other things that we have have talked about. You also can see in some of these places uh, the fact that local-level law enforcement institutions Often find themselves either too weak or too corrupt to be uh, fighting these uh, fighting these uh, crimes effectively, and therefore this is a phenomenon for which Mexico does have a, a, a comprehensive security strategy. But it's not just Mexico's uh, phenomenon, of course. Uh, so I agree with you that this is a new this is a new uh, rather new change that has uh, has been uh, brought about over the last 10 or 15 years. Mexico's has peculiarities. Uh, but it is certainly the case that some of the crimes that you've talked about, like human trafficking, and drug trafficking, and gun trafficking, and gun smuggling, and others are concerns not just of Mexico and another place, but of other places in the region. I don't think we should call it a, go- a war on drugs, uh, partly I mean, in the, in the case of Mexico, uh, because this structural transformation made a very significant difference in terms of what the business of these organizations looks like. It's not just uh, exporters of drugs anymore. Uh, these organizations that have diversified, that they have that they have that have um, uh, increased their activities in, in, in to a number of other uh, of other areas of um, of criminal activities. and that is why the debate on the legalization of drugs has to have a place uh, on the security agenda, but also to the only to the extent that it affects one of the criminal activities of these cartels. Uh, so I think we should find we should we should probably name it. A fight against organized crime and in Mexico we are very clear about the need to make sure that we are not only able to weaken these organizations very significantly at the top level but also that we have the the local level uh, capabilities to make sure that we are able to fight these organizations effectively from the local level. And that's why one of the most significant transformations from the Mexican government not only has to do with our ability to crush them up on top, but also to increase local level capabilities to make sure that crime actually goes down on a systematic basis. And uh, to address your question about are we winning, well, there are certainly areas in uh, Mexico in which we have seen Uh, the curve of not only violence but other crimes go up, but also because of the response of the state and because of the capabilities of local level authorities to uh, improve uh, over the short run, the the level of crime and the level of other uh, homicides and other activities also to go down. Uh, This is the case in Baja California, this is also the case more recently in Michoacán. We had these very strong criminal organizations, the leadership has been brought down, local level authorities have started to improve their capabilities, and we are looking at uh, a greater ability of law enforcement to uh, improve not only uh, uh, the, the resolution of some of these crimes, but even crime prevention. So indeed, uh, we need a very systematic effort at the federal level and at the state level to improve security conditions, but we are already seeing some stories of success at the regional level, and we, we believe very clearly that in terms of the diminishing of criminal activity and criminal uh, rates, we will be much more successful in, the, in a few years to come.
2: Okay, thank you very much for those very thorough responses, Dr Poiré. I now see a A lot of hands going up, so I'm going to begin at the beginning here, uh, the gentleman here. I'll take uh, uh, two or three questions at a time so we get more voices in. So uh, gentleman there, and then um, we'll move forward. If you could introduce yourself. uh.
3: My name is Jacob Parakiles. I'm a Ph.D. candidate writing about Mexico and the United States and drug violence uh, at the LSC. Thank you very much, and I just wanted to ask you, uh, there's been a sort of, uh, spate of stories recently about an increase in American involvement in Mexico. There were the two DEA agents who were uh, shot at and one killed on the uh, highway south of Monterey. There's been a story about the uh, U.S. fusion center outside of Mexico City, and there was the uh, recent New York Times story about the use of uh, American drone aircraft in Mexico. Uh, in your view, what's the uh, role of the United States in the violence, and uh, what would what's the for the Mex from the Mexican government's perspective uh, what should be the role of the United States in managing the violence thank okay. you
2: I'll, ta- I'll take a second question uh, gentlemen. No, okay gentleman here doesn't really matter just just ask your question please yeah. hi uh, John Collins I'm a PhD at the LSE Um a recent council and foreign relations report suggested that states in the United States should experiment with marijuana legalization as a first step towards undermining the cartels um, co- President Calderon was against California's legalization initiative. I wonder would they change their opinion next time? Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'll take a question from the lady at the front here. There's a, there's a, over there. over there. Just take it. Thank you very much for being so patient, Dr. Parr. Yes, please.
4: Hi. I'm Elsa Peraldi from the University of Cambridge, and I have two questions. The first, it's more academical, and it's about the implications of the Amparo law. And that his, um, in regard to the human rights reform that has been approved and what would be the implications for um, a citizen requiring power based rather in international law instead of the Constitution, especially in measures of the use of force by police forces. And the second question is what the federal um, government is doing for improving media coverage in cities where there is not that media coverage. I'm from Saltillo, and I know that um, the local authorities are saying that everything is fine, nothing's going on, mm. and the situation is completely the opposite. And so, what's what's okay. the approach?
2: It just shows you how nice we are at the LSC. We give somebody from Cambridge two questions. <laughs> there you go. Well, Dr. Poirier, you've got four questions there. One on U.S. involvement, as I understood it. One on the question of legalization. Another one on the question of human rights law in broad terms international law, and the fourth one on media coverage and whether or not the local media is always telling the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth
3: Thank you very much. These are all very good questions and um, uh, especially for uh, for uh, for academically oriented uh, um, uh, uh, folks in your audience and uh, in your school, I will appreciate it if uh, someone could give them my email because I'd be happy to to uh, to address uh, these issues at, at greater length if need be, if, if it would be of your interest. Uh, as you know, I have a I have an academic past, uh, uh, probably also an academic future, uh, uh, but I'm I'm happy to, to address some of these already? questions. No, not really. No, I'm happy where I am. Don't worry about it. Uh, We still have a lot to do. Um, uh, Thank you. Um, uh, Greater involvement of the United States. I mean, uh, this is is something that um, from the very beginning of this administration, even when the Bush administration was in place in the United States, uh, President Calderon was adamant at explaining and uh, 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 stressing very clearly that this is not just Mexico's problem. This is a problem that has a transnational uh, uh, foundation, that this is a problem that has to do with the demand for drugs in the United States, that has to do with the availability of guns in the United States, and the availability of cash in the United States, and of course other things that are happening on a regional perspective. So this is something that uh, is sometimes not, sometimes not very clearly uh, seen in, by international audiences. But up until the, a couple of years ago, when uh, first Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and then President Barack Obama very clearly stated that this, was, this problem was a matter of shared responsibility between Mexico and the United States, we hadn't even had that kind of acknowledgment on behalf of the United States government. This is something that is strictly political, but it's also symbolic and an indication of the kind of interaction and the kind of collaboration that on, a, on the basis of uh, each country's own jurisdiction and each country's uh, uh, policies and laws, we have been able to implement over the last four years. Uh, I mean, some of the things that you have mentioned, indeed, the Mexican government has made use of the capabilities and technological uh, uh, um, uh capabilities I'm uh, uh, sorry for using the same word again that the collaboration with the United States allows us to do. This is not something that the United States has actually done on its own. These are the kinds of things that we have engaged in as a request from the Mexican government because the kind of intelligence and the kind of information that we already have that we can process, Uh, has been very successful at bringing down some of these drug lords. But if we can use greater capabilities that are available thanks to cooperation, we will certainly keep on using them uh, um, uh, very clearly within what uh, the Mexican Constitution and Mexican law allows us to do. Uh, So we will keep on doing it. uh, And I think uh, collaboration, shared responsibility, and each country uh, being uh, uh, responsible and um, for what it can do on its side of the border, and also in cooperation according to bilateral agreements and Mexican law, we need to keep on doing that uh, much more effectively as well. Uh, It is very important when we talk about the legalization of drugs to keep in mind that this transformation that I've already mentioned has already taken place. Uh, And I'll give you an example of what this implies. Uh, Almost every single international account, account of the drug market indicates that at least 40, perhaps over 50% of the marijuana being consumed in the United States is now produced domestically. That is, it is produced in the United States itself. Therefore, according to uh, an estimate by the RAND Corporation, uh, Mexican drug cartels derive about 15 to 20% of their income only from the marijuana trade. What this implies is that, yes, a legalization of marijuana uh, if it were done on a, a comprehensive uh, a basis, could imply significant changes uh, to uh, Mexican drug cartels, but that their changes would actually be not as substantial as one might imagine. Uh, this is precisely because of the transformation that I've already talked about, I meaning because these cartels have gone into the cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, and other markets. Uh, uh, um, Uh, not just in terms of the drug trade, but also the other kind of criminal activities that I've already mentioned, including human trafficking, gun trafficking, and and, and the like. So indeed, uh, I think the Mexican government has been very open to a a thorough debate on the legalization of drugs, uh, to talk about the public health perspective, to talk about uh, uh, the impact on security issues, to talk about not just uh, consumption, but uh, what it would entail for the whole chain of production and so on and so forth. We're open to that debate, but I think we need to keep very clear that it is uh, almost anachronic uh, to talk about security and equating that to uh, drug trafficking, um, uh, partly because of the reasons that uh, Professor uh, 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 Michael Cox has already mentioned as well. Uh, Elsa, uh, implications of the Aparo law and the constitutional reform, Uh, very briefly, uh, as, uh, as you already noted, the Mexican Congress has already passed a very significant constitutional reform on human rights. It hasn't finished the constitutional process; it has to go to the legislatures of each of the states. Uh, at least um, uh, uh, more than half of them has to approve this constitutional reform. And yes, this will entail some. Uh, this will have some implications for the debate on amparo law. I would much rather you send me an email, and I'll give you a, a thorough explanation because it's a rather technical one. And I think for the benefit of of, uh, our audience, I'll address your your second question more more thoroughly. Uh, Media. Uh, The the media is uh, is something that we certainly need to keep a look uh, uh, very closely uh, uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is the one that you just mentioned in terms of to what extent in certain cities uh, local media is actually reflecting the situation that we already have. And yes, indeed, we have seen some problems uh, um, and uh, some very sad episodes that we regret and we condemn uh, uh, of uh, criminal organizations attacking um, uh, 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 journalists. That is precisely why we have introduced a bill to make sure that crimes against freedom of expression have a special treatment and can be prosecuted by the federal government. And that is a bill that's still pending in Congress. In the meantime, what we have had is that we have uh, uh, created a number of mechanisms which have started uh, at the federal level and need to be uh, further uh, uh, pushed ahead at the local level to make sure that the kind of uh, cautionary measures that are needed to protect some journalists that are covering uh, criminal activities uh, can be effectively put into place. And we now have that system uh, of early alerts. Uh, it's starting to develop, and we have some uh, some changes there that need to be stepped up and need to be strengthened, not just at the administrative level, which is what we are doing, but in particular at the legislative level to make sure that we have enough capabilities to address that. It is also the case that in terms of the coverage of some of the phenomenon of... Um, by criminal organizations, you have, on one extreme, if we might put it that way, uh, some uh, uh, expressions uh, that would want media outlets to be reproducing everything that criminal organizations do, including their messages, including some of the gruesome crimes that they have committed, and on the other uh, extreme of the of the of. Um, of this uh, perspective, you would have people saying, oh, no, they cannot cover anything because they're just producing or reproducing the propaganda of these criminal organizations. I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that, A, criminal organizations do have a propaganda strategy. B, we need to strengthen freedom of expression. We need to strengthen the ability of the population to have the proper kind of information not just because it's a a democratic right and a democratic um, uh, tenet of our society, but especially because a better informed citizenry will be better able to demand outcomes from the uh, governmental authorities, to make sure that governmental authorities are doing the kind of investment and the kind of transformations that were not done over the last 20 years, perhaps, and to make sure that the outcomes are done with. total respect for human rights. And when there are some uh, abuses that need to be uh, prosecuted, uh, that's actually what's going on. So I think we need to push further ahead. I would agree with you that at the local level, uh, we certainly need to push ahead uh, uh, with uh, greater transparency policies and further uh, democratic transformation, not just in the area of security, but also in the area of freedom of expression as well.
2: Okay, thanks, Dr. Quary. We've just had a note. There's so many questions being asked. We're going to go on just a little bit longer. Uh, I'll just take the lady here. I'm going to take three again. We can just ask the questions quickly and then move and then go across into the lady in the middle. Yeah, please.
5: Good morning. My name is Anaíli Castellanos. I did a master's in UCL of public policy and being in an academic forum. And as you said yourself, having been a former member of academia before. I want you to ask you about your position in bosses from the academia in Mexico, like Dr. Felipe Curco or Edgardo Busavia, that are providing factual evidence and showing that the Mexican government strategy towards organized crime is flawed. For example, they mentioned that the punitive rate of towards members of the organized crime is less than 2%. I would like to know how much is the Mexican government listening or paying attention to these claims and these voices, thank you.
2: Okay, that's a question about evidence. If you can just put the microphone across here. Yeah, yeah, please, thank you. Um,
5: Hello, my name is uh, Sophie. I'm a student here at LSE. I'm doing my Master's in Sociology of Crime. And I was wondering um, to what extent um, or how, Is controlling arms trafficking from the US to Mexico relevant to um, the fight against organized crime in Mexico?
2: Thank you very much. I'll take one final question. Um, The gentleman here, yeah. Want some gender balance, you know. Yeah. Hello, um, my name is Jorge Kawas. I am a master student at UCL. You could speak clearly into the microphone. Yeah, I have two questions. Um, questions (laughs) What gun control strategies are being implemented, and how do these target other markets like uh, South America? Central America not only the US and about police reform um, how is uh, the model for a unified police force on a state level going to be implemented and are there any realistic benchmarks to measure progress ok did, did you pick, oh, sorry it's just the microphone is not very good did you pick that last question up clearly enough Dr. Poiré mm,
3: I think I did I think I did, uh, my response will tell yeah, well, we'll, um, well
2: we'll know what the question is when we get the answer yeah, that's an it yeah. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, let's no, start. Think on, let's you. start on the question of evidence. I think that's the. Uh, you're an academic. Where's? The, what is this? Is it, are you giving us all the right evidence, basically? You know, is there another story about the evidence? Yeah,
3: well, no. I think uh, there is a. There is a. Um, we we still have a a significant problem of uh, impunity, in particular at the state and local level. Uh, a number of facts to be kept in mind. 90% of crimes are local level jurisdiction. 90% of police forces are local level police forces. Um, Indeed, we face a very significant problem with organized crime. uh, And it is not a sufficient condition to bring down these big cartels. But it is certainly a necessary condition to guarantee that we can solve the public security problem at the local level. Because otherwise, we would be facing very strong, very articulated, very wealthy criminal organizations. We have brought them down. Every single one of them has been weakened. And we will keep on doing that. Uh, But it is very clear that we need to make sure that impunity levels for this 90% of crimes that are committed within local level jurisdiction uh, go down. Now, this 2% that um, Anaeli talked about uh, is the percentage of total crimes that end up being prosecuted uh, with a uh, uh, condemning sentence uh, at the local level. This is, the, this is the problem that still needs to be addressed fundamentally at the state and local level. When you look at that percentage for federal crimes, just to give you one, one, one piece of information, over 90% of criminal cases sought at the federal level end up in a confirmatory sentence. That is, the people that are being accused end up being uh, uh, confirmed by the judge in about nine out of every 10 cases. Therefore, uh, yes, we still have a problem of impunity, but that's still a problem mostly at the state and the local level. Uh, What are we doing to address this? Uh, Not only have we transformed criminal codes and constitutional code and also the legal general laws that address some of these crimes and some of these phenomena. We have also increased the, the amount of subsidies. of Over $5 billion uh, uh, have been uh, directly transferred from federal budgets to state budgets, exclusively for the development of their criminal justice system, of their state level police, of their municipal police, of their investigative capabilities. Uh, this is on top of what. The huge expenditures that the state level, the state level governments themselves have been able to obtain due to fiscal reform over the last few years. So uh, there, there is still, of course, a a a a, uh, a part of the homework that needs to be done, uh, and we have in place the federal programs and the constitutional reforms to be able to do that. But that is mostly a transformation that needs to be done at the state level, and there are very good examples of this reform actually working out. In some municipalities and in some states uh, that are moving ahead in this direction, but in terms of what the federation needs to do, I think those who advise that we should not confront or confront uh, uh, or we should not confront these organisations head-on, especially at the federal level, I think that they are wrong because we would not be able to give state and local level authorities the space and the room that they need to build up their capabilities if we were not not, uh, confronting and weakening these organizations at the federal level. And we have some evidence that shows that, uh, I mean, I've shown some of the the indicators of the weakening of these organizations, but also in those states in which state and local level police officers have actually been transformed according to the federal model and have actually improved their capabilities, crime levels and homicide levels have, have gone down. And that's the case of Baja California over the last two years. Michoacan, more recently, and we expect to have similar success in other states as we move ahead. Um, Arms trafficking, I think that's a very significant problem. President Calderon mentioned it uh, uh, in a number of occasions, even when we we went to a joint session of the United States Congress. uh, He actually said uh, very explicitly that the United States needed to do much more to control this arms trafficking. We are enhancing our border capabilities, not just in the north, but also in the south. But it is very clear that we need to make a distinction in terms of the United States between their constitutional rights to bear arms and the fact that the guns that are being uh, sold illegally from gun shops and gun shows in the United States and into Mexico, those guns are violating US federal and local level codes. We need greater enforcement of those activities, and we will keep on pushing uh, on that regard to make sure that we are better able to slow down the traffic of of guns. Because these are the guns that make it much harder for state-level authorities to confront these organizations. On the other hand, I've already talked about the expenditures that will allow state and local level uh, authorities in Mexico to be more effective at this. Uh, The last question was about police reform. Because of the number of things that I've mentioned, uh, one of the bills that was sent to Congress by President Calderón has to do with the fact that we need better, relatively centralized command of police activities in Mexico. There are two principles behind what we call the mando único, or central command bill for police reform. One principle is we need centralized command. It is much harder to address uh, criminal activities if we have 2,200 municipal level police forces, 32 state level police forces, and one federal police force, all of them uh, with different degrees of coordination and cooperation, than if we have one national police force and 32 state level police commands. This does not imply that municipal level police forces will disappear, it just implies that those which remain at uh, the municipal level with their own relatively autonomous command will only be those that have the capabilities and the expertise and the skills and the equipment to be able to survive in that way. And they will still be reporting to one centralized state level command. For all of those other municipalities that may not have simply the size to be able to have their own municipal-level police, it will be the state-level police forces that will actually perform local-level police activities, so all of the range of police police activities that are needed at this at the local level, and so the bill guarantees that every single police force will have the kind of professionalization, uh, skill development, vetting process, and uh, uh, overall. Um, uh, enhancement of human capital that is needed for police forces at the state and local level, that is the the component of improvement and professionalization, and that at the state level, we would have 32 uh, centralized commands, even if we have some municipal level uh, forces that were previously developed. And I think that is at the heart of the bill. Uh, Independently of what happens with the legislative process, We are now in the process of developing specialized units at the state level that guarantee that we will have the human capital uh, 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 at the state level, at the heart of these police uh, forces, um, on each of the 32 states that are subsidized, trained, and developed with the help of federal authorities. So by the end of uh, of this year, at the beginning of the next, in every state we will have at least the heart of these new uh, police forces and in some states we have already had that kind of development uh, Baja California is one example but we also have good examples in Querétaro and Guanajuato and other states uh, uh, in Mexico as well that are already developing their, their police forces uh, effectively and thoroughly
2: Okay, I think we've got a num- number of other hands that are going on. Could we take the gentleman in the middle here who's had his hand up before first, and then I'll come over to here and then I'll, I'll try and bring in... Please, sir. Uh,
1: thank you, Dr. Poiré, for your, for your talk. My name is Giuliano Fiori. I'm a research assistant at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Um, you mentioned or you placed significant emphasis on uh, the growth of a domestic market and of uh, domestic consumption. Um, and indeed, uh, President Calderon in, in 2006, uh, before launching the war on drugs or on organized crime, whichever you call it, um, one of the phrases he used and repeated was that the drugs were going to reach your children, he said to the Mexican people. Uh, there's been a number of, of studies into um, that growth in, in consumption, and as you mentioned, relative to other countries regionally and, in fact, globally, uh, still quite low in Mexico. Um, one particular study by uh, Ruben Aguilar and um, Jorge Castaneda in 2009, their, their little essay, the Guerra uh, um gave some statistics about uh, incidents, prevalence and addiction if anything actually coming down um, certainly relative to population growth so I wanted to uh, ask you what uh, retort you might have to those, to those figures um, and then quickly just need a, a one word answer you, you said that approximately 92,000 people were arrested how many have been prosecuted and also was the security spending figures in nominal or real terms thanks
2: that's, f- that's four questions well done Very parliamentary. Uh, Yeah, I'll take the lady over here and then a gentleman behind. One question, one person, I think.
5: Okay. Hi, thank you. I'm Mariana. I'm a master's student here. And I'm no expert, so sorry. (laughs) Take it as a citizen uh, question. But uh, for what I know and what I've read, uh, one way of fighting this criminal organization could be uh, weakening their fin- financial assets and they uh, I don't know, freezing their bank accounts or something. So I was wondering what the Mexican government is doing about that or has done or is planning to do. Right.
2: Thank you. That's, that's one one person, one question. Good democratic principle. Yeah. Gentleman uh, there.
3: Thank you. Not, not an expert either. So, um, well, my, I'm a student of LSE. Um, my question would be the Mexican strategy has relied heavily on... On the army to that it's going into the streets and fight the organized crime. Um, this, in turn, um, raises concerns of human rights. So, um, what is doing the, the the Mexican government to address these concerns? Um, um, this, so to speak, trade-off between uh, the protection of human rights and the efficiency that allegedly the 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 army imprints uh, to hamper the crime.
2: Okay. Well, uh, there's plenty of questions there to be getting on with,
3: Dr. Poirot. Over to you. Thank you. Um, uh, let me begin with the uh, with uh, the last uh, the last question by our friend uh, who called himself not an expert. I'm sorry, I didn't get your name, but anyway, um, uh, no, I I, I think the Mexican government has a very thorough policy on human rights as well. Not only have we passed this constitutional reform that has already been mentioned uh, uh, to strengthen the capabilities of the Mexican state as a whole uh, to guarantee greater uh, 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 an enhancement of the enjoyment of human rights uh, uh, broadly speaking, but also we are very aware of the fact that we need to be very careful in terms of the participation of federal forces, including the Army, in, uh, in, this, uh, in, 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 uh, in the fight against criminal activities. Uh, it is very clear as well that uh, uh, the, the Mexican Army uh, has devoted a very significant uh, proportion of its training uh, to uh, training in human rights that is being performed not by military officers or anything of that kind. It has actually been conducted by civil society organizations, leaders within the human rights community in Mexico, to guarantee that on the one hand, every single member of the army who needs to participate, I mean mean the the, the armed forces, because this includes both the army and the navy, that needs to participate in these activities of containment against criminal organizations, does have the proper training in uh, use of force and uh, human rights uh, to guarantee that this is something that has already been uh, uh, part of their training and should be a part uh, of of their activities uh, when when they participate in, in criminal in criminal in fighting in the fight against crime. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that we have sent a bill to Congress to modernize criminal jurisdiction to guarantee that some of the uh, some of the most serious crimes have uh, uh, that could be committed by criminal by I'm sorry by military officers. Uh, in their, in their, during their duty, can be effectively uh, prosecuted by civil, uh, by civil uh, uh, trials and by civil judges. So that's another aspect of it that we have uh, that we have uh, 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 began and that is in the course of uh, of being transformed as well in the legislative. It is also the case that of all of the complaints that have been filed to our autonomous human rights commission. Uh, Less than 2% of them have been found to actually imply human rights violations on behalf of the army. Uh, And in the total number of these, uh, the number a little bit over 70 over the course of the last four and a half years, uh, in each and every one of them, the army has accepted the recommendations of the Human Rights Commission and has followed through in the implementation and uh, uh, compliance with these recommendations. So of course, we are aware that this is something that needs to be addressed. And those are the kinds of things that we are putting into place. The most important thing that we need to do is to make sure that we will no longer need the direct participation of uh, the army and the navy in these activities. These activities are clearly granted uh, by uh, uh, constitutional statute. Uh, uh, I mean, the army can actually participate uh, uh, in these activities. The Constitution clearly allows for that. There are Supreme Court criteria that allow for this to happen. But the key aspect of it is that as we are weakening these criminal organizations, and the federal police has had a very significant role in this as well, uh, and as we increase the capabilities of state and local level police authorities, the presence of federal uh, forces, and in particular the army, will be less and less needed. So this is something that we need to keep on um, uh uh speeding up to make sure that this is as we have said from the very beginning just a temporary temporary part of what what the army has been doing um financial assets we have done a significant uh, uh as, i mean as you saw we have uh, seized uh, uh, financial assets more than ever before in the past but we do recognize that we need more and more to be done in this regard uh, I'll give you an example of the kinds of things that you can do in Mexico that are still legal and that need to be changed. It is still currently legal in Mexico to buy a house uh, and pay it in cash. Uh, uh, it used to be legal and it used to be uh, still um, something that, ca- that could be done to pay almost everything you wanted in dollars in Mexico. And uh, so businesses could actually change exchange whatever amount of dollars uh, in banks and in exchange houses without any kind of restriction. These are the kinds of things that would allow criminal activities to benefit from a relatively loose uh, regulation on financial activities. So the number of things that we have done that we can do without legislative uh, change, we have already done. The limits on the amount of dollars that can be exchanged by uh, individuals and businesses, have gone significantly down, uh, and therefore the number of, of, of dollars that have uh, are circulating freely in Mexico's economy without any restriction in cash has gone down, and this, uh, uh, this means significant restrictions not just for, um, say, informal activities, but also indeed to, for uh, illegal activities. We have increased the intelligence capabilities and the fusion capabilities on behalf of uh, of uh, the criminal authorities, both in the finance ministry and in the attorney general's offices, and in the police, federal police, to make sure that we're more effective at uh, prosecuting the number of crimes related to to money laundering. That the percentage of these has gone up by about 30 percent. The number of cases uh, 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 prosecuted by money laundering uh, 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 on money laundering by the federation. But we also need a stronger bill, and we need stronger restrictions such that. For example, uh, cash expenditures uh, to buy a house can be prohibited and uh, the abilities of the financial uh, regulators to be more effective at addressing this problem are enhanced uh, as well. So that's a bill we have pending in Congress. Uh, uh, In terms of uh, Giuliano's uh, uh, questions, uh, the one thing we need to keep in mind is that what changed in Mexico and what is escaped uh, in uh, Ruben Aguilar's and Jorge's, uh, Jorge Castaneda's analysis is, A, indeed, the, for example, the, the consumption of cocaine virtually duplicated between 2002 and 2008, uh, and these are the figures, these are figures that uh, even if they do not, and that's, for example, the market of cocaine, and we have similar increases in other markets, marijuana. It's almost twice the the, the size. And the most important fact about it is not just that it implies a huge percentage uh, of uh, relative to the kind of consumption that we have in the United States. But what's important, and especially for those who study business uh, over there at LSE, you will very you readily understand, that what's important for these businesses is the marginal profit that they get from uh, selling a ton a ton of marijuana uh, for exports, where most of the value added is going to be uh, uh, is going to be distributed among the people that at the last part of the of the distribution chain, uh, if they export the marijuana to the United States, relative to what they would earn if they actually distribute it in Mexico. Uh, there, the most, the greater amount of value added will be given to the distributors in Mexico, which happen to be these cartels. So the important fact about the transformation of the drug market in Mexico is not just that it's relatively increased, but that this relative increase that's actually a duplication of the size of the market uh, in a relatively small uh, period of time, thoroughly changes the incentives of the organizations, because it, it suddenly becomes much more profitable to distribute a ton of cocaine in the Mexican market rather than to just throw it down the other side of the border for the, the consumption of, of domestic markets in the United States. Um, and yes, the figures on, on, uh, on uh, the expenditures of Mexico are, are in real terms.
2: OK, I've got a few more questions. We're coming, probably, maybe the last, i us see. Gentlemen there, then go back uh, behind you. Yeah, go I'll take you through it. Very quickly, please. Uh, we're not hearing you very clearly. I'm sorry, either. I can't hear. Try another one.
6: Yeah, I worry very much about the statistics presented, and I wonder whether um, is, uh, the statistics uh, uh, of uh, uh, prosecuting criminal gangs, seizing all these weapons from them, is due to a success in the government strategy or to an escalation of the criminal activity which is only possible in a place like Mexico where impunity is rampant I wonder whether he might um, and the administration might want to spend a little more time dealing with the question that you asked in the first place whether this is a phenomenon due to organized crimes and how they flourish only in places like Mexico at that level mm-hmm. and uh, whether that is uh, rethinking, he gives any thought and any room at the possibility that what they are doing might be, might be might, might need readdressing, rethink, and re- re-strategizing. Okay. Uh,
2: there's a person directly behind you with a hand up, please. Dr. Tanya Harmer.
1: Hi. I'm Tanya Harmer, as uh, yes, Mick Cox said. Um, I wanted to ask a question about cost of this strategy and take it back to uh, Professor Cox's initial question about the international dimensions. We know that when there was a crackdown on the cartels in Colombia, one of the key effects was to to disperse uh, cocaine production and and, and the cartels. And of Plan Colombia, uh, one of the impacts has been to raise coca production in Peru, for example, significantly. So I was wondering uh, what's known as the balloon effect. So I was wondering really... uh, about the about the international impacts of uh, what's going on in mexico today particularly um, in terms of pushing cartels down to central america and wondering if the mexican government is involved or has any role in trying to tackle the problem of of this balloon effect um on a more multilateral international level in uh, the region
2: okay thanks. you i'll will t- take the other question just from the direct across yeah so just well, yeah. Please.
0: Thank you. My name is Maria Jose. I am a graduate student at LSE. Uh, thank you for your brilliant presentation. Uh, I was wondering about the panorama of for Mexico over the long run, taking into account that it it, it is it is possible a, an alternation in the government. I mean, I might, I might be wrong, but I remember from some classes in my in my undergrads discussing these topics that the last party, the pre-maintained kind of agreements or arrangements with some cartels in order to kind of let, let them do, it, do their business towards the United States as long as they didn't do business inside Mexico as in the domestic market. And obviously this has changed uh, for several reasons, but in the future elections that we might have a possible alternation Uh, what do you think about that another party will be prone to make disagreements with cartels against in order to reduce uh, violence or something like that
2: Okay, uh, Dr. Barrett we got got another question on statistics people are being a bit sceptical at this end I think and by the way I want to come back onto one question that was asked earlier on You may have answered it, and I may have missed the answer. Uh, One of the questions asked earlier on: there have been 98,000 arrests, but how many convictions? Uh, Maybe because that brings up this whole question of how you read statistics. Uh, The the other one is the balloon effect: the cost, displacement, the long run, and then can you predict the next Mexican election? And (laughs) if not, or if so, uh, what impact might that have? Why don't you go back on the statistics question, perhaps, Dr. Pari, first.
3: Absolutely. Um, 90, 98,000 is a number of people who have been arrested under federal authority uh, from the different cartels. I already mentioned that all of all of the cases brought to a judge, uh, the rate of uh, convictions uh, with a with a sentence uh, actually confirming the crime is above 90%. Now, from this universe of 98,000 people who, which have been arrested, there are different moments in the in the process. Uh, so most of them have not uh, uh, finished the process of, of being uh, brought to a judge. We need to make sure that the process is faster. We need to make sure that the process is much more efficient to guarantee that this is something that will be done more effectively and more quickly. But from those who, which have been pro- brought, brought to a judge, over 98%, not over 90% of them have been, uh, have been uh, condemning sentences. Now, uh, indeed, like I said, we need uh, to make sure that uh, the transformation of the criminal justice system actually moves ahead much more quickly. Uh, 90% of these cases, uh, of all of the criminal cases in Mexico, of all of the crimes committed, are performed at the state on local level. And for example, when you see states, uh, for example, like the state of Nuevo León or like the state of Chihuahua, in which some of the initial steps of the transformation of the criminal justice system have already taken place, the one thing you see is uh, exactly what you would expect from this kind of oral arguments uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, of a criminal justice system, which is trials are taking much uh, much less time. Uh, and uh, most of the crimes that have people are convicted from are actually being uh, crimes that uh, go uh, to longer sentences, uh, indicating that. Uh, The criminal justice system is devoting more time to uh, the cases that are relatively more serious, and the uh, minor offices are actually being solved by alternative means. So this is something that uh, uh, people in uh, in Great Britain will know very clearly uh, about, and that is in the process of being implemented in Mexico. I'm not saying that this is not something that where we have areas of opportunity. We indeed have them. But I think that the, the greater part of the, of the problem is at the state and local level, and we are doing things to address that. Um, and I mean, th- there was not just a question about the, a question about statistics um, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of the impunity levels. I think there was also a question in terms of whether the kind of graphs and the kind of information that we're showing is uh, because of our success or precisely because of the opposite. And I think. Uh, if we agree with the, the, the background that I've already mentioned, and this goes directly also to Maria Jose's question as well, um, it is very clearly the case that these criminal organizations were there. Everybody knew this in Mexico, not just five years ago, not just 10 years ago. Everybody knew this was going on in Mexico 25 years ago and we just didn't need we didn't do what was needed to do to confront these organizations it was thought about at that time that to the extent that these people were just producing marijuana and sending it over to the united states we could leave them alone and reap the the benefits of uh, their increased business that if at some point in time they conflicted amongst each other or that they did something that was perhaps uh, not to the liking of the local level boss some kind of negotiation could be done. We could just turn around and look the other way. That is precisely why we got into the problem that we are currently facing. That is precisely why these organizations got so big, so powerful, benefited from the global process of increased communications, increased uh, 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 efficiency in the transportation of illegal goods as well. That is precisely what we need to prevent in our thinking about this problem. President Calderón, during the summer of last year, uh, was keenly aware of the the concerns of the Mexican population uh, with the success of the strategy. So he opened up a series of public and very uh, uh, inclusive dialogues with representatives from social organizations, business leaders, uh, uh, experts on crime prevention and crime fighting in Mexico also media leaders, um, uh, all sorts of, uh, of civil society organizations, legislators, judges, uh, uh, local level authorities, municipal level authorities. And a number of concerns were raised there. And uh, s- stemming from those dialogues, which have kept going on at the local level as well, with the presence of pre- President Calderón, and which have been open to the public and the media, uh, a number of initiatives have taken place to improve those areas where we needed to improve uh, at the, in the middle of the road. Such is the case of uh, the money laundering bill. Such is the case of the in- initiatives to improve state and local level police forces. Such is the case also of uh, the production of greater amounts of information for the readily, uh, uh, to make it readily available for the analysis of, um, of, uh, of the citizenry and public opinion, broadly speaking. Uh, So indeed, we're constantly re-strategizing and we're constantly addressing some of these problems. But the one thing we must not forget is that the alternative of not fighting these organizations head on will only get us deeper into the trouble that we were. And indeed, when one looks at the weakening of these organizations, it is very clear that these organizations, and that is, for for example, the case of Baja California, that is, for example, some of the things that we are starting to achieve in Michoacán these organizations have been significantly weakened, and crime levels will begin to go down much more significantly uh, over the long run. And I think that that um, uh, that gets me back to the question of the cost of the strategy and, um, uh, uh, and the implications of what we are doing. Again, this is not a problem that is exclusive to Mexico. We can think of it that way, but we will be wrong. This is a problem that, has benefited, has transformed itself, has uh, grown, and has uh, rebuilt itself around globalization. It has built itself about around the notion that human trafficking networks go all the way from the Far East and into places like the United States, even through Central, uh, Central Europe, Northern Africa, South America, Central America, and all the way into the United States, for example. Such is exactly the point, the case with some with some networks of um, of, uh, of uh, illegal drugs, but they just go in the opposite direction. For sometimes from South America, Central Africa, no Northern Africa, I'm sorry, Central Europe, and back into the consumption markets uh, in in Western Europe as well. Such is the case uh, even with uh, criminal activities and criminal markets, not just for guns, but also for uh, mineral materials and uh, other. Uh, uh, chemical uh, uh, producers of different types of drugs crime has been globalized as well and it is in inter- in different countries it has different expressions sometimes it's the production of certain drug sometimes it's the trafficking of certain illegal uh, 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 products it's sometimes simply the fact that there is a benefit to be reaped by these organizations when they link to local level gangs and when they link with corrupt or weak local level uh, public security institutions. And indeed, every single country that has, uh, has been witnessing some of these happening in its own soil should implement a structural strategy to make sure that these organizations remain weak. That's exactly what we need to do. And this has uh, a lot to do with what we're doing in Mexico. This has a lot to do with what we're helping Central American uh, governments and authorities achieve as well from a regional perspective. Uh, uh, It is not something that is simply created by the fact that some countries actually step up their law enforcement uh, efforts. It is very clearly the case that regardless of what uh, some governments actually do, every single government that is facing part of this challenge should look very clearly at the kinds of things that we have already talked about and perhaps many other things with the particularities of each and every country. Uh, How strong are your law enforcement institutions? How strong is your uh, in particular your social fabric? Uh, How able will you be? What kind of intelligence capabilities do you have? What kind of shared responsibility do you see from your from your neighbors what kind of international cooperation efforts can you do? What kind of training do you need? Is your uh, for your police forces what kind of training do you need for your judicial judicial system? And those are the kinds of things which we we, we have been talking about with our neighbors, and we were certainly participating and uh, and uh, helping them develop as well. Uh, uh, and in terms of the long run uh, perspectives, of course, what happens in 2012 will, will be something that will be up to the voters for the voters to decide i think whoever is the next president of mexico and this is that's still uh, sometime uh, sometime ahead of us more than uh, uh, 18 months still whoever is the next president of mexico will of course have the prerogative to review what has been done over the last years but will certainly have the structural institutional and human capital foundation to build upon a a, a much more effective uh, kind of, uh, of law enforcement effort than the one that we faced, uh, precisely because that kind of investment wasn't done over the last 10 or 15 years and that, that's the kind of thing that, uh, that hopefully if we're, very, if we're very effective at weakening these organizations even more and in some states they're better able to improve their, their local level institutions much more rapidly we will be facing a much better security situation in Mexico as well
2: Okay, I think we're going to call it to an end now. Uh, we've reached uh, just about ten two. so I think uh, we've had a wonderful wonderful session. Uh, I learned an enormous amount. I'm sure many in the audience, all the audience did. First, let me move a vote of thanks to all the organizers on this very imaginative uh, two days. I think it's been fantastic. Uh, my own view is that I'm not a Latin American or Mexican specialist, but certainly... The more Latin America we get in Britain, the better, because I just I just think this is an area which really needs further development, and it's 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 wonderful to have these sessions, and so well done to all the organisers who have put in so much work, and to George. Uh, secondly, thanks to the audience. One does thank the audience sometimes, um, particularly nice audiences who ask very intelligent and bright questions, and that's been great. So thank you for all the questions, but most importantly, thank you to the speaker. He's been brave enough to volunteer his email. Um, I think that's a very, very dangerous thing to have done, because you will be getting hundreds of emails, by the way, Dr. Poiret. Uh, but thanks for a terrific presentation, and hopefully next time we'll have you here and not, not, not you on a, on a picture. So I wondered if we could all say thank you to him, and uh, let us continue this conversation by email. Thank you very much indeed.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much.